Welcome to the Business Networking Show, brought to you by your partnerships. Here is your host, Lee Randall Pybus. So, what is social engineering? I haven't got a Scooby Doo, but Todd Gifford has, and he is on this episode right now. Now, this content I'm going to give you was taken from a live online networking event. Uh, so, you can see the video replay of this if you want to by heading over to the Your Partnerships Facebook page. <laughs> So social engineering, what is social engineering? Mm, great question. So here's the official definition that I found. Uh, and I'll just read it out. Social engineering refers to the psychological manipulation of people in performing actions or divulging confidential information. Mm, right. Uh, anybody got any ideas what that means in the real world? So I'm expecting most people on the call. No, no, okay, I can see some shakes heads and stuff. So uh, it's a confidence trick, right? That's all it is, right? So social engineering gets banded around a lot when people talk about phishing or some of the kind of email scams or you know, number one cybersecurity issue, whatever it might be. And effectively, all it is, is a con, right? So anybody ever um, come across con trick in real life? I put this on the screen. Who's watched Catch Me If You Can? as a film with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, right. So if you want to learn about um, social engineering, watch Catch Me If You Can. That is everything you need to know about how to carry out a social engineering attack in any sort of circumstance. There's particular scenes for um, uh, when he pretended to be a doctor, and what's really interesting about this film is actually based on real life. So uh, Frank Abernathy, I think the guy's name was, um, was actually a, a, a manifest con artist and he pretended to be lots of things, including the lawyer and the doctor. The scenes from when he was a doctor in an ER, no medical experience whatsoever, but managed to bluff his way through in this scene, a situation where a patient came in the middle of the night with a, you know, a bit of an injured leg. Um, how did he do that? He looked confident. He sounded confident. He asked for a range of opinions from everybody. He, he uttered the, the, the ultimate phrase from it, do you concur? So we got everybody to agree a course of action and left all the students to it and then went and threw up somewhere else in a you know, different part of the building, whatever the case may be. Absolutely no idea about how to stick a plaster on anybody um, in real life, but equally he was pretending to be a doctor because he looked convincing. Um, reminds me, uh, I, I once went to do a bit of work for uh, a car dealership, sort of Reading where, I forget exactly where it was. I was there to do a bit of work in the computer room many moons ago. So I arrived with a computer in my hand. I walked through the showroom. I walked to the door at the back, which had staff only. Opened the door, went through it, walked up the stairs, walked past the finance department, said good morning to them, walked down the corridor to where the computer room was. They left the key in the door, the computer room, went in the computer room, shut the door and didn't come out for two hours. When I came back out for, you know, around about lunchtime, I stopped at the finance department and said, all right, uh, yeah, how you doing? And I said, oh, um, you didn't ask who I was when I went in. They went, no, no, you look confident. So we left you to it. And I basically just walked straight into someone, the heart of someone's business operation with a piece of equipment and could have been doing anything for two hours and nobody asked me any questions at all. So it's much more about how, how convincing does it look rather than the reality of should you really be there in that instance. Um, so there's lots of situations where uh, things have happened. I think, wow, you really should have just asked me a question there um, and just stopped. What does that mean in practice? Well, I think um, you know, it was quite a well banded about figure, 19.95%, 85%, whatever you want to read out there, different sources. Um, this one comes from CoFence. They're an email phishing testing company, so they're bound to say, you know, phishing's uh, kind of a, 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 you know, high up there on the list in terms of social engineering attacks. Uh, but it's true. So you think about the number of things. I had one day before yesterday, the classic HMRC, phone up if you don't press one now, we're going to send the police around and arrest you and all that sort of stuff on your telephone. Um, again, it's a, it's, it's a conflict. 
confidence trick, social engineering. Um, so I think numbers speak for itself. The reason um, that most people um, start to uh, try to attack organization via social engineering is it's much, much easier to manipulate a person than it is to manipulate a computer system, unless it's an exchange server that you haven't patched, for example. Um, just to pick on something topical there. Um, but usually it's much, much easier to coerce somebody into doing something which will enable you access rather than trying to break through some sort of highly technical security control, for example. And that's the reason this sort of stuff happens. And it works, right? So the reason people keep doing this is because they get quite a high hit rate in terms of people responding to these things, clicking on things, coughing up money. I think we did this a little while ago, uh, Dean and somebody actually on the call that been unfortunately been caught by one of the scams that we talked about um which was you know it, it does happen it can happen and you know th those are kind of unfortunate things if you like so uh, that's the thing to look out for and that's basically what we're talking about here is the focus of the rest of the prezzo um so why social engineer well it's still quite motivators money right so ultimately the people that are trying to social engineer you or us or or anybody else out in the marketplace are after one thing cash they're criminals that was the motivation of most criminals money um so verizon have actually got this uh, uh security survey it's once a few years old now they publish it every year and this is their kind of uh, market take if you like on what the motivations for attacks are well look financial mm, that, that appears to be the most popular one there the next one is espionage and again you know if you reference china attacking exchange servers or russia attacking people that have got solar winds installed on in their environment whatever the case may be Espionage is the next one, so that's the next one you need to be concerned about on the list. Everything else is, well, you know, for fun. I'd rather go to the beach, to be honest, at the weekend, or whatever the case may be, rather than sitting around trying to break into systems, um, ideology, convenience, whatever. So most organisations, if you think about the motivation stackers, they're money motivated. What's the easiest way to get money from somebody? Just ask for it. Uh, I don't need to be particularly technical or particularly skilled just to ask somebody to give me money. So invoice fraud or, you know, pay some money into an account or else, you know, that sort of thing. It would be far more effective than uh, trying to exploit some sort of vulnerability. So a um, little bit about baiting. Now, typically, when we do this in the flesh, we leave some stuff lying around, maybe on the, you know, the cake and the coffee counter or something else like that. And we'll leave a USB stick floating about. And this is the point in the press where we goes, oh, I've seen that. I says, anybody picked it up? To date, I haven't had anybody actually try wandering off with this. They've always handed it in to somebody who'd be running the event, for example. But this is a typical sort of thing that some people have been caught by. See a USB stick lying around outside the fence in the car park, whatever it might be. Pick it up, stick it in the front of your computer. And at that point, you've bypassed the majority of the organization's security controls, potentially. And you're loading malware onto someone's machine. So, you know, that classic case of if you see something like this floating around, pick it up, put it in wee waste, dispose of it appropriately. Um, you know, or, or, or something like that, don't plug it into the PC. Typical email we might see might be something that looks a bit like this. Actually, the, the, the point here is that A, who's not an Amazon customer, occasionally I've had an A person per hand up, I don't know anybody who's not ordered anything from Amazon. So potentially this is attractive to people. This link here is actually the link to the UK Amazon help desk for Amazon, it's, gen it's real. What isn't real is the next link, this one uh, up here, um, that one, I believe, has got a URL underneath it off. So I hover over here, hahagotyou.com. Right, yeah. I'm quite happy to share this uh, later on, the case may be. Um, it doesn't work, right? I, that, that's not enabled. But um, the point being there that what they've done, if I just go back a slide, what the intent behind this email is to provide you with something that looks attractive, give you, an, give you a link to a genuine page on the Amazon website. So again, we're using some truth here to try and reinforce the message. 
and then a link which is not genuine which might take you to a page that asks you for your Amazon credentials to log in, for example, or something like that. Say. So, so a classic kind of like well, an information gathering attack, which they can then use to order themselves some nice stuff, buy a lot of nice stuff on Amazon, for example, um, and do whatever you will with it. So that's a, a common one that people receive. Here's another one. I'm sure people have seen this before, potentially, which is the old HMR ski scam. Your due a refund. Right, we'll give you some money back. Great. Please put your credit card details in at the bottom. Mm. They're really going to give you a refund on your credit card? No, they'll probably send you a letter in the post that says, please log into the web page and here's a code and all that sort of stuff. They're never going to do that, but people have fallen for it. You know, the classic things to look out for. What's the web address? Well, just some complete nonsense. This one happens to be in all oh, China. There you go, for example. Um, so something to watch out for there is a classic one. There's another phishing one for free money. TV licensing scam. This was something that uh, one of the people on the, the previous talk we did actually got caught by. This was a process where um, individuals sent an email saying you're doing a, a TV licensing refund. What happened is if you hit the refund form, it takes you to a web page that looked genuine, actually put in a bunch of details like bank account detail, TV license number, you know, all those sorts of things. Didn't really ask for any information that could be used for anything. You know, if you've got a, a sort code and a bank account number, I think probably the worst damage you can do is put money into somebody's accounts. That's not too bad. However, what happened was a few days later, uh, the individual who filled out the form will get a phone call from somebody purporting to be from the bank. And they start out with a question going, oh, were you offered a TV licensing refund recently? Yes, I was, says the uh, person who filled out the form. Ah, right. We've noticed some fraudulent activity on your account as a result of that, because that happens to be a scam. So what they've done now is phoned up the person who filled out the form and told them the form was a scam. So they're building that kind of trust and credibility because they've got the person's name, address, bank account details and TV license number because they filled all that information out on the form. They then started to look really, really genuine. Um, and a lot of people got caught with this, you know, tens of thousands of pounds into that people's accounts because they've been moved to a safe place. It wasn't um, currently being, uh, you know, um, some sort of uh, phishing things as well. But there's other little details in this that look, you know, kind of nice. They've hidden the address, obviously. You know, we've, we've recorded your IP address, so we know who you are, basically, is the bit of the warning down the bottom here. So all those things look kind of credible, but it's actually complete bubkus, right? It's complete nonsense, and it's all part of a, a slightly longer scam. So it's quite well crafted. Uh, this one's a classic. So if you're in Office 365, you will probably have seen an email which says, please log in here to update your login details that people have to access to your Microsoft 365 account at that point. Telltale sign on this one is this has got an S in the in the um you know in the url here clearly that's unfactual quite easy to replicate in the microsoft login page though they're after your creds so they want to know what's in your inbox they're looking for invoices they're actually looking to use it to attack other people so that's quite a common scam as well when people will try and target somebody's office 365 environment not because they're interested in it they just use it as a platform to attack somebody more more uh, more interesting if you like Clickbait, you know, you've got the typical, oh, you won't believe what happens next and click this, you won't believe it type stuff. Always be wary of those, especially if they get sent to you in an email, it's quite common stuff. Um, the number of people that go, oh, you know, puppies or, you know, free holiday or free money or whatever it might be, something that looks really, really enticing, especially in the current market. So it's, uh, you've seen the classic at the moment, you get a text message saying you owe the Royal Mail £2.95 for a parcel or, you know, pay 70 quid for import duty, for example. So if you bought something from Germany, which didn't originate in Germany, there's an import tax that you've got to pay on that now. That might be something which looks genuine to some people because they've had to do it or they're expecting to do that. They'll cough up the money, completely ungenuine though. So there's lots of stuff that circumstance get played into to generate something you can manipulate somebody with. Um, 
So where do fraudsters get their information? All these con artists out there that are trying to go people into doing things, where do they get their data? So uh, social media, basically, if you want to find out anything about anybody, go and have a look on social media, um, especially, you know, Facebook, Instagram, for example. Um, but actually, these accounts themselves are quite attractive to attackers. There's lots of data in there and lots of things they can use potentially to coerce other people into doing things. So if you've got a Facebook message from somebody you know asking for some money, pay it into these bank account details, for example, a lot of people would do that because it looks like it's coming from a genuine source. Skip out that last one. So the risk. So I think business interruption, including supply chain interruption, is the, the biggest risk in the UK at the moment, or globally, I should say. Number two is pandemic. No shocker there. Number three is cyber incidents. Well, actually, hold on a second. These are fairly well aligned in terms of their likelihood or level of risk. And can my suppliers also sub be subject to a cyber incident? Yes, they can. So if you've got any sort of supply chain going on in your organization or you're part of a supply chain, expect some scrutiny from a cyber perspective coming up. Uh, to give you an example of that, we recently had to put a business through Cyber Essentials Plus um, because one of their largest customers mandated it as part of their supplier management process. They sell desks as a business. So from a, a cyber risk perspective, their risk is fairly small. They've got no data. They don't really do financial transactions. They don't service end customers. They sell office furniture, um, but they still had to do Cyber Essentials Plus or their largest customer wouldn't do business for them. So we're starting to see a lot more of this sort of stuff come through in terms of you know, mandatory uh, accreditation in that space. A couple of things to point out on Cyber Essentials. So as you're familiar with it, you'll be aware it's a self-certification scheme. So you fill out the questionnaire. If you answer that correctly, you will get a Cyber Essentials certificate. I've lost count of the number of businesses I've been to see which say, yeah, we've got a Cyber Essentials certificate and then don't have firewalls, for example, which is the first thing in the list that you must have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I went to an organization once which, um, Printed bank statements and credit card statements for a well-known bank, which may or may not start with a C, um, provide private banking services. Um, and they're an organization that had uh, ISO 27001, which is kind of you know, the gold standard for information security, uh, if you like, in terms of risk management. Going through an audit, supplier kind of review for them on behalf of the people we were working for at the time. We went, we got to the subject files and went, yeah, yeah we got a file, okay. Classic audit quest, auditor question, show me, show me your file. Okay, it's that box there. And I looked at this box and I thought, that looks suspiciously like a Cisco router. Next question, is that running the security firmware? Mm, no. Right, so it's not a firewall then, is it? No. So there we are, we've got this supplier which is printing hundreds of thousands of bank statements and credit card details every year. Um, for various different financial organizations, they've even gone to the trouble of putting all the printers and equipment and people in a separate room and putting locks on the door and all this other stuff, but they didn't have a firewall. But they had ISO 27001. So the, the challenge with there is that that's a risk-based information security management system, and it is perfectly valid to accept the risk of not having a firewall. That's valid behavior. Tick, as long as the person at the top of the chain presses the tick button, that's fine. In Cyber Essentials, it's the first thing on the list. If you don't have one, you can't get cert unless you don't answer it correctly on the questionnaire. Um, so in that instance, they went through a process, they implemented a firewall and they sent me a screenshot with the traffic flowing through the file going there, we've done it. it, it's all fixed now, brilliant. The thing that um, struck me most was that 90% of their traffic was actually Netflix. So I don't know what their staff were doing all day, but they clearly were sitting around watching TV at the same time. So there's quite a lot of stuff that goes on there. You think, wow, that's uh, going to be a business productivity improvement opportunity there, let alone a security improvement. So you can probably get rid of a bunch of your staff now because they're not doing anything. They're just watching TV. 
Um, the really interesting stuff that you see out there that you get is a consequence of implementing a decent security control, if you like. Cyber Essentials Plus involves a bit of um, scanning. So when you do that as a piece, um, uh, a, uh, 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 an auditor, if you like, has to come to your environment or remotely as happens these days, runs a scan on your network and they'll be looking to scan a selection of machines that are in your scope and the outside of your firewall. Great, no problems. There are some challenges though. They don't actually check to see if you've got a firewall. They just run a scan on the thing that you tell them is your firewall, okay? And equally <coughs> within your environment, they're interested in scanning Windows and Mac devices. They don't scan things like printers or network devices or anything at CCTV platforms, anything else like that. So some good examples of that is if you've got a firewall, for example, which is, well, I don't know, 15 years old, maybe something of that sort of nature, went end of life five years ago, hasn't had a security patch and has a you know, major security vulnerability. If you shut that service off, that won't get picked up in a cyber essential scan. So I know a lot of organizations that may or may not have switched off vulnerable services for the, the, the point in time where they run the cyber essential scan once a year and then switch it back on right afterwards. Therefore, they get a tick, say they're cyber essentials plus certified and they're nowhere near. So some stuff to check. So if you ever get involved in organizations you go, yeah, we're cyber essentials, this and that and whatever, just Go have a look if it's a critical thing in your environment just go check trust but verify i think is the phrase uh that springs to mind there so lots of people out there that you know there's ways you can work around some of those certifications um so a couple of final thoughts from me i think really um so i'll just put all these up here um i don't know if anybody's ever come across code spaces as a business does this ring any bells with anybody so here's an organization which uh a bit like github whatever they stored code for application developers um, they had an incident whereby one of their administrators got fished. They coughed up their username and password to their AWS environment. The attacker got in there and locked them out of it and demanded a ransom. Um, 300K or whatever it was, I think the ransom was. Codespaces said, well, we can't afford to pay. So the, the attacker did what they said they were going to do and deleted their AWS environment, including mm -hmm. all of the backups because they stored it in the same place. Net result of that is Codespaces went out of business the very next day and said, really sorry, we've been attacked. All our stuff's gone as is all your code developers, we're off. See you later. Shocking. Um, MFA would have probably defeated that particular um, attack um, or certainly had a good, a good stab at defeating that attack. So if you don't go to Delft, make sure that's switched on just everywhere you can possibly get it. Um, SolarWinds, so I think everyone's, you know, if you're in the IT space, you'll have recognized this from a perspective. This is where SolarWinds themselves uh, had some malicious code injected into some of their um, tools. I think it was the Orion platform, uh, which is a cloud-based monitoring platform. That added a backdoor, um, essentially. So some code then, once they got onto someone's environment, talked out to the internet somewhere, to the command and control server, which somebody was then able to issue commands, <laughs> data or install some other malicious code or whatever it might be. The very typical kind of command and control type infrastructure. Um, for me, I'm thinking, right, some of the environments that had that as a tool, probably shouldn't have allowed their servers to talk to anywhere on the internet. I might have had some firewall rules in there that said you're allowed to talk to Google for DNS and Microsoft.com for updates, for example, and nowhere else because you're a domain controller. What, you know, you, you don't need to do that. Um, you know, even web servers don't actually need to talk to the internet in large amounts of terms. They only need to respond to requests. So I'd certainly be looking to limit what your internal infrastructure can do on its own or initiate communication-wise. Um, that probably would have defeated that attack in many instances because it wouldn't have been able to connect to the command and control servers. There would go no control, there would go no further action. Last one here is, oh, what a shocker. Again, this is a, a um, cautionary tale about suppliers. I worked with a business a few years ago that it's um, been through a process, we shall say, whereby they had a web shop, 
um, took a lot of credit card payments and the credit card issuing company came to them um, and said, we think you've had a breach because we're seeing lots of our customers have their have credit card fraud. So they kind of pieced this stuff together, realized all the, all these particular individuals have been shopping on this one website um, and highlighted a breach. Turns out somebody injected some you know, major cart or something like that onto the website six months previously and we're harvesting, um, harvesting credit card numbers. Um, when the customer reported to the web provider who'd built the website and the shopping environment and hosted it for them, um, they said, right, we're gonna have to go through a forensics process. So they sent somebody down there. The web provider actually deleted all of the logs for the previous six months about anything that had happened in the environment. So there was no evidence of anything going on in that environment at all. No transactions, no people locking in, nothing. They just wiped it all out. So there was an inconclusive um, uh, investigatory process because there was nothing to look at. Uh, I'm led to believe that the uh, CTO of that particular organization left very shortly after that happened. Uh, for example, don't know why. Um, and what happened from a customer perspective is the people I were working with, they actually had to go through a tier one PCI DSS process in order to be able to continue um, taking credit card payments on this website, even though they were absolutely no near the was it million or four million card processes or processes they got to go through every year to meet that criteria. They had to do it, although the card issuing company were going to stop them from processing credit cards on their eShop where they did all their business through. So they had to go through this six month process of getting PCI DSS costing tens of thousands, really expensive thing to do because they didn't have a lot of controls in place, simply because somebody forgot to patch the web server. <laughs> um, so I think you're using Apache, whatever the case may be. So, you know, if you don't do anything else, MFA and always press the update button on any, any services that you've got would be uh, my best possible advice, if you like, from uh, preventing this sort of thing from happening again. So a little bit outside of the fishing there, but just some examples of you know, common things and you know talking about the latest exchange hack that's been a been an issue that's been in place for years who still runs exchange internally and we still run exchange in this environment we'll look after people that do run exchange on premise you know when i'm looking at some of the it types in the, in the room so it's rare now to be honest a lot of people have probably moved on from doing that and they're using something else in like gmail or whatever it may be um and given the way the it world's evolving that's probably a safer bet um i think people like google are much more motivated to fix things quickly on a, on a large environment um, rather than individuals who probably haven't patched stuff or didn't know there was a problem, for example. So that's uh, something to consider about um, <clears throat> leveraging somebody else's security infrastructure for a small monthly fee is sometimes a benefit rather than a, a hindrance, if you like. Um, anyway, that's about it from me. Um, yeah, enjoyable i'll stop talking for a bit now thank you for listening to the business networking show brought to you by your partnerships check out all our upcoming networking events at yourpartnerships.co.uk